Hello and welcome to Radio Astronomy, the podcast from the makers of BBC Sky at Night magazine. You can subscribe to the print edition of the magazine by visiting skyatnightmagazine.com or to our digital edition by visiting iTunes or Google Play. Greetings to the April episode, listener. I'm news editor Ezzy Pearson, and I'm joined in the studio today by editor Chris Bramley. Hello. Staff writer Ian Todd. Hello. And production editor Neil McKim. Hello. Coming up later in this episode, we'll be talking to Jason Wright from Penn State University about NASA's NUID instrument, which is helping astronomers measure the mass of exoplanets. And we'll tell you our top stargazing tip of the month. But now we're going to take a look at our April issue, where we're commemorating the Apollo 13 mission. 50 years ago, on the 11th of April, at 13 minutes past the 13th hour, Houston time, Commander Jim Lovell, Lunar Module Pilot Fred Hayes and Command Module Pilot Jack Swigert launched on their way to the moon. Swigert had been a last-minute replacement for the original Command Module Pilot Ken Mattingly. In the weeks leading up to the launch, several people close to the astronauts had come down with German measles, a disease that Mattingly was vulnerable to. Not wanting a sick astronaut during the moon landing, he'd been swapped out for his backup, Jack Swigert. The crew hoped that this would be the last case of bad luck for Apollo Unlucky 13. They were wrong. On the 13th of April, just before setting down for the night the crew of Apollo 13 stirred their oxygen tanks. Little did they know that a faulty temperature sensor had caused the wiring inside tank number two to become damaged. The wiring sparked, igniting the oxygen, and the tank exploded, venting all that oxygen into space, while also causing a slow leak that soon emptied out the second tank. The oxygen was vital to the mission as it fueled the power cells which ran the command module. No oxygen meant no power, meant no hope of survival. The crew's only chance lay in using the lander meant to touch down on the lunar surface, which they now had to use as a lifeboat. After hastily transferring over their guidance systems, the crew moved over to the lunar lander. Without enough power to operate their main engines, the crew instead had to pass around the moon and then slingshot back to Earth. To do this, however, the crew would need to survive for several days. The biggest problem was the crew first encountered was their air supply. While there was more than enough oxygen in the lander's tanks to support all three crew members, the carbon dioxide filters were only designed to keep two people alive. If they did nothing, then the carbon dioxide in the module would slowly grow to toxic levels. The command module had enough spare filters to keep them going, but they were square and the lander only took round ones. And so the crew had to use an assortment of bags, hoses, tape, and all all other manner of things they found on board to jerry-rig a system that would allow them to keep breathing easy. After two days of tedious waiting, the crew finally managed to make it home alive. It's an incredible story, and it's one that was commemorated around 25 years ago in the film Apollo 13. It's one that everybody knows the story of, at least in part, if not in full. And it's it's an incredible story about what these people did during their time in space. It's amazing, isn't it? I mean, it's arguably as as famous, if not more so, than um, Apollo 11. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, there's no film, um, you know, before the 50th anniversary of Apollo 11, there was no film made about it, mm. was there, like uh, Apollo yeah. 13? I suppose it has all the drama um of you know kind of uh the peril uh the rescue you know all those kind of classical themes um are are there in the space age yeah it's kind of funny when you go back and go through the story and and exactly what happened and it really became the victory of the mission became surviving 
Mm. which is weird when you think about it because if you looked at the Apollo 13 on paper you'd think oh that was a disaster mm. but as you kind of slowly get through the narrative and exactly what happened when when I was reading your feature Ezzy whenever I got back to the to the end whenever they actually make it back to Earth um, it, 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 it felt like a victory the fact that they'd even just survived yeah it's it's definitely it's one of those things because I was talking to um, Jerry Woodville who was actually on the ground when it was happening. Um, it was his alarm system that that triggered the warning that, that led to the immortal phrase, Houston, we've had a problem. Um, and him and anyone you talk to at NASA, they never call it the Apollo 13 disaster. It's the Apollo 13 rescue. It's It was one of NASA's great moments um, showing that they could bring these people, not just take them to the moon, but bring them back safely, even when there was a disaster of this magnitude. Because it was, it was a huge problem that they had. Um, They'd lost their main fuel source, their engines were gone. Um, Pretty much everything that could go wrong did. (laughs) And still they managed to bring back these three people safely. Yeah, I mean, we we spoke about this before during the Apollo 11 podcast, when we were kind of talking about... um, Neil Armstrong's calm under pressure when he was you know, seconds of fuel left and he had to find a new place to land on the moon amongst all the boulders and just being able to keep keep calm and that that's the thing that comes across in the Apollo 13 story is just the fact that they didn't they, they well they couldn't afford to panic I suppose so they mm. didn't mm-hmm. and they just, they just did it really coolly and yeah they did it in mm-hmm. the end mm-hmm. yes it, there was a, a a particular point where one of the um the capcom so the person who was in in charge of of communicating between one between the the people on the ground control and the crew upstairs had to say okay guys you you need to stop talking all at once and we need to get through this methodically because we're starting to get confused and it was just the fact that they did that so quickly and methodically worked through everything and didn't let themselves get all in a fluster Mm, that's right i mean um that was um thanks to um people in the Mission Control Center uh, in Houston, Texas, who um, from the moment Apollo 13 cleared the tower until it splashed down in, in the Pacific Ocean, they were the, they were the people in charge. Um, there were about 30 controllers uh, in that windowless room um, in Mission Control, um, and they had um, telemetry, um, computer readouts on all um, every kind of aspect of the mission to keep them up to date. Um, these were the these were the guys that had to um, respond when the explosion happened. Um, the first thing the controllers had to do, um, who by the way, whose average age at the time was twenty seven years old. So these are mm-hmm. these are young uh, young guys. Um, you know, suddenly thrust have all this kind of responsibility um, uh, thrust on their shoulders. The first thing they had to do was assess the damage, and once they knew its extent, they could. They could then kind of come up with a plan and get the, th- the crew home. Um, so that kind of assessment of damage um, took about 15 minutes while all the various um, stations in the um, in the mission control kind of um, drew up the latest data and presented it to the, the flight controller. Um, and after that, they, they had a clear picture of what the what the problem was, what um you know what the explosion had damaged which which was critical which was still what was still available to them in terms of um fuel and and um uh you know uh, stuff to live on and survive 
And at this point, they they had two options: um, a direct abort, which would involve firing up the main engine on the service module and performing a long burn um, to reduce their velocity and send them back to Earth without flying past the moon. Uh, or the alternative was to allow the spacecraft to sling past the moon, um, which is called free return, uh, and then hurtle back to Earth um, with the helping hand of lunar gravity. Um, the problem with with this one was that um, navigation would have to be provided by the lunar module's smaller descent engine. Um, so... Uh, there was there was this kind of thing going on. Um, the ground controllers in Houston had a, a a real formidable task here. They they had completely new procedures that had to be written and tested in the simulator um, to fire the the lunar module's engine um, for longer than it had been designed to do. Which was um, it had to be fired for five minutes to give them the velocity to send them home, um, and then they had to pass this up clearly to the crew. Um, and the navigation problem had to be solved as well. Is it, uh, how, how, when, and and what, what kind of alt- attitude does a spacecraft have to be in um, when you when you burn that descent engine um, to send them home? Um, I mean, there were some remarkable achievements. So, you know, not least was the um, the problem to solve the carbon dioxide levels um, in the lunar module, uh, which would had only been designed for two people, and there were um, three people in it now. Um, and while this was going on, there was another team who were quickly developing the procedures for powering up the command module after its long sleep um, on the journey back to Earth. And the flight controllers um, did a lot of testing in all the simulators in the back rooms in Mission Control. Uh, and they wrote the documents and the procedures for that uh, in three days um, rather than um, the usual three months. Um, so, I mean, it's all down to kind of training, experience, uh, knowledge of the risks beforehand, um, strong leadership of Gene Krantz, which meant setting clear priorities and telling everyone what they what they what these priorities were. Um, and by doing doing all of that, the members of Mission Control in Houston and the hundreds of technicians and engineers in the back in the background mission evaluation rooms. Um, and all the contractors at the firms who'd built the spacecraft around the country, they were all able to pull together in an astounding feat of teamwork um, to save the crew at the end of the day. Mm. <laughs> it's interesting you mentioned uh, Gene Krantz at the end there, because I was going to say that's that's a name we definitely have to bring up. I mean, mm. when we're talking about Apollo 13, wasn't wasn't this the, wasn't this the, the mission where he came up with the uh, tough and competent? Um, didn't he say that uh, from now on mission control is going to operate under these these two concepts? Yes, being that's tough right. Being tough and being competent. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it was just that, wasn't it? It was just, it's almost like they just needed that one person, that kind of tough Gene Kranz to kind of stand up and say, right, we're going to do this, This is this, and this is going to work, and there's no, there's no time for negativity because we can do it. It definitely seems that their approach was, it will be fine, we will get them home, the, there isn't another option. Yeah, exactly. And it was like... We're not going to think about mm, what happens mm. if we can't because it's not going to happen. Mm. Um, yeah. yeah, they were developing, you know, plan Bs, plan Cs, plan Ds all, yeah. all the way down just in case things didn't work. They had kind of yeah. backup plans or, you know, all the way along to kind of keep keep the thing, keep them going. So they, they that kind of um, that kind of never give up attitude. 
um, was definitely there. Because that's in the film, isn't it? Failure is not an option. Yeah. Tag, tagline. <laughs> that, was, yeah, yeah. That, that was more a, a distillation of, yeah, of yeah. his general, what he was saying. Yeah. But yeah, it's, yeah. Yeah. Think what it must have been like, though. It must have been just like, just cigarette, just filled with cigarette smoke and just coffee cups lying everywhere and just yeah. people like sleep, sleeping on the, uh, you know, on the floor and yeah, just power napping all over yeah. the place. I yeah. think there was like, there were, it was about 80 hours um, when these people were kind of, you know, sleepless and, and needing to make really critical decisions, yeah. uh, which aren't best done. <laughs> I do. On lack I, of sleep. I do kind of feel sorry for the crew because they were literally about to go to sleep for the night when this happened. So oh, they'd been yeah. up for a full day, and then they couldn't really. I think a couple of them managed to get like an hour of sleep before they had to like do the transfer over to the lunar lander and try and mm. do all of these incredibly complicated procedures that they'd never trained on. Um, that had just been made five minutes beforehand by their colleagues back on Earth. Mm. Um, it's also worth saying that uh, Ken Mattingly, the uh, command module pilot who was supposed to go up, and Charlie Duke, who was the backup command module pilot, they were the two that were running simulation after simulation back on Earth um, to to make sure mm. that their colleagues came back safely. Wasn't part of the problem with with the crew that they were basically drenched in their own condensation? Yes. Yeah, it was really wet in the in the lunar module, wasn't it? It's uh, one of the problems was they had to um, turn off the heaters because they were quite a big power drain and they were very worried about the power. So um, they were having they were constantly breathing out, which meant that there was condensation building up in the air. Um, meanwhile, they were running out of water to drink because uh, the cooling systems on board used water um, to to make sure that the nothing overheated and everything kept working. But the water was supposed to be supplied by the fuel cells, which had just exploded. Well, the oxygen tanks for had just exploded. <laughs> so they were, that, that was one of the reasons why they were having to severely ration how much water they were drinking whilst they were absolutely soaked in their own <laughs> sweat and <laughs> breath and condensation. Um, mm. It reminds me of that um, Coleridge line, um, water, water everywhere, not a drop to drink. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty much. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I suppose one of the big um, things that you think about um, with Apollo 13 is what, what they were intending to do. Because, you know, um, amidst kind of talking about all the the things that went wrong and all the things that they managed to solve, there was a mission here that got lost. There was like a a lunar mission Basically, that um, that that never happened. Well, which isn't quite true because Apollo fourteen ended up picking up a lot of the things that um, a lot of the experiments and things that uh, Apollo thirteen um, didn't pick up. So, um, yeah, the the idea for for Apollo thirteen, um, there was a, a, an actual kind of dedicated um, uh, description of what they were supposed to be doing. So it was, um, and this is kind of like a, an actual NASA kind of verbatim quote. So it was to perform selenological inspection, survey, and sampling of materials in a pre-selected region of the Fra Mauro formation, deploy and activate an Apollo lunar surface experiments package, develop man's capability to work in the lunar environment, obtain photographs of Canada exploration sites. That um, uh, Fra Mauro formation site that they're they're talking about. Um, which is this kind of uh, hilly area about 500 kilometers from the Imbrian Basin, which is the um, largest basin on the on the Moon's near side, um, and the uh, Fraumaro Formation 
they think was formed by um, a large impact in the moon's early history, um, which which created the Imbrian Basin. So it, it was this kind of notion of of churned up um, lunar uh, material, mm-hmm. um, potentially from as deep as kind of tens of tens of uh, kilometers uh, below the, the lunar surface. So the idea was to to you know take samples of the material found there, and you can kind of compare that to um, old, older surface material, and then you can find out a lot about um, the moon's formation, but also potentially about Earth's formation as well, because um, you're kind of going back to the early solar system and and the formation of of bodies and um, their interior and things like that. Um, yeah, so uh, in in that NASA quote, they they mentioned the Apollo Lunar Surfaces package, which seems to be something that uh, a lot of the Apollo missions. Um, Carried so uh, Apollo eleven and twelve had left seismometers on the moon. Apollo thirteen was carrying one that was similar to Apollo twelve, and it was it was going to be left there. And there was also a heat flow experiment, which was due to be um, conducted by the Apollo thirteen astronauts, which would have involved drilling holes into the lunar surface, and then you you measure the heat escaping, and you can learn a lot about the moon's uh, interior from that. Um, There was a charged particle lunar environment experiment, which was measuring protons and electrons. Uh, emanating from the sun and reaching the lunar surface, that that was carried out by Apollo Apollo fourteen. That was another um, aspect of Apollo thirteen that was carried over to Apollo fourteen. Uh, there was a lunar atmosphere detector and a dust detector to measure the accumulation of debris. Um, and also interestingly, uh, Lovell and Hayes were supposed to, were going to be travelling farther on the lunar surface than on previous missions. So they had a, a kind of um, expanded and upgraded um, tool carrier, essentially a, a massive toolbox. It was made bigger and given wheels. It was called the Modular Equipment Transporter. It was like a portable workbench with um, room for, for tools and cameras and all this kind of stuff. And again, that, that was uh, that was carried by um, Apollo 14 in the end. Uh, I'm sure that that's an incredibly advanced piece of equipment, but I am just imagining a little red wagon. <laughs> well, that, 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 funnily enough, that earned the nickname the Lunar Rickshaw <laughs> um, because of it because of its um, similarity to the um, you know the kind of handcarts you use to pull oh, people right, around. Yeah. Um, yeah, that that so yeah, basically just like a like a kind of uh, um, a porter's. Uh, Porter's trolley, really, isn't it? <laughs> I mean, these, you can't get too technical with some of these things, can you? Uh, there's also an interesting uh, fact about Apollo 13 that was it was the first mission where they had red stripes on the helmet and arms of the commander's spacesuit because after Apollo 11, there'd been issues um, distinguishing between Armstrong and Aldrin in the photographs. Um, and they'd kind of realised that too late for that to be implemented and entered in Apollo 12. But from Apollo 13 onwards... Um, on the Apollo missions, the, the commander had these these red stripes, so that later on they could kind of tell who who was who. A tradition that they still have today. When you have uh, mm. spacewalks, uh, one person will have red stripes. Um, they were also tasked with imaging the Gagan shine from lunar orbit. That some of our kind of uh, experienced um, astro- practical astronomers might know about that, which is the kind of reflection of the sun um, off off the atmosphere, um, uh, as as it appears from Earth. Um, and Swigert was also tasked with taking photos of the Lagrangian points of the Earth-Moon system. Uh, and as far as I understand it, the uh, Lagrangian points, I've, I've heard of this in relation to the sun, but it's, it's the same concept, isn't it? It's this kind of uh, gravitational equilibrium between two bodies. So the idea was to take a photograph of that area and you could then see whether or not there was a collection of dust or debris or anything like that as a result of the kind of gravitational equilibrium. 
Um, so it, it's it's a shame that kind of uh, Apollo thirteen didn't really um, didn't didn't get to carry a lot of his science. But as I said, a lot of it was then carried on for and uh, undertaken by Apollo fourteen. They did manage to get one experiment to go off, which worked quite well. Which was um, mainly because it started before the accident happened, um, which is the stage four B crashed into the surface of the lunar surface. Um, and the seismometers that were on board on, on the lunar surface at the time managed to, to pick that up and, and get some information about what's going on inside of the moon, in the moon's internal structure. Um, so they did manage to get something out of Apollo 13. <laughs> well, that's good. It wasn't a complete um, yeah. <laughs> waste waste of resources. Um also, whilst they were passing around the the far side, when they were the looping around, um, because this was actually, it was the furthest, Apollo 13 is the furthest that humanity has ever actually been away from Earth because oh. they had to go a little bit further from the moon um, than they would normally. Uh, and the, the two rookies on the mission, um, Swigert and Hayes, decided to take this opportunity to take a couple of photos out of the window. Um, and reportedly, Lovell said to them, what are you doing? If we get this next manoeuvre wrong, we won't, you won't be able to go back and develop those, uh, those pictures, um, to which they apparently retorted, yes, but you've been here before. We haven't. <laughs> um, so even then, they managed to be a bit lighthearted and, and yeah. take stock. And apparently they, those are actually some of the most scientifically useful images that people have taken from wow. an orbit around the moon because they were that little bit further away. Well, I've been looking at the reaction because there was quite a change in the press reaction, which is picked up in the film again. But if you look at it, when Apollo 13 launched into space, crewed missions to the moon uh, were starting to become a bit old hat when it came to press coverage, especially after the triumph of Apollo 11. Uh, but just a few weeks after a barely noticed launch, the three astronauts were featured on the cover of Time magazine, their heads bowed in prayer under the headline in block caps, The Return. After their nail-biting journey, when an oxygen tank ruptured, uh, 56 hours into the mission, they returned as heroes. The world's press had seized on this dramatic rescue that had been directed by Mission Control. According to BBC aerospace correspondent Reginald Turnhill, Apollo 13's launch was routine and it launched on time uh, with Marilyn Lovell, Jim's wife, and her children doing a good-natured press briefing afterwards, saying she hoped her husband's fourth mission would be his last. He recalls that in its early stages, as it progressed routinely, there was only one other reporter in the press area. But all this was about to change. Turnell was about to go to bed, but had just stayed around for a few more minutes when at 55 hours, 55 minutes into the mission, the accident occurred. He put out a report in BBC's early news programme and suddenly mission control was inundated with requests for coverage from news editors from across the globe. He spent the day joining doing press briefings as the media mobs grew with cameramen and journalists offering to help. Engineers appeared and set up satellite transmissions, costing £5,000 for 10 minutes. <laughs> Blimey. Wow. There was also media mobs descending outside the homes of the astronauts' families, 10 miles away from the Space Centre. His colleagues maintained a mission commentary transcript 
which amounts to 500,000 words and about 1,200 pages of the proceedings. And as headlines appeared across the world, some of them became more sensational. For example, an Australian headline called it the ship of shame. But in contrast, the BBC, of course, took a more measured approach. Turner recalls that there was nothing to match straight facts when it came to drama. Mm. Mm. Um, there was also some wild theories about the accident, one being that Apollo 13 had been struck by a meteorite. Yeah, because that is a, a valid point there, which the crew didn't know. And in fact, ground control, nobody knew what had happened. They'd just been suddenly, their tank had gone and the other one was emptying out. Um, and it was only at the very end of the mission, just as they were getting ready for re-entry, they released the service module. And the service module is the bit of the spacecraft that has your fuel tanks on and all of that sort of stuff. Um, and as it drifted away, Lovell looked out the window and saw that the entire like half of this service module was just shredded, had just been absolutely exploded. Um, and that, that must have been a bit... I'm um, probably <laughs> quite glad that that happened at the end of the mission rather than halfway through. Mm. And I think after that, they were very glad that they didn't do the first option of return, which was fire the service module engine um, to to bring them back short of going around the moon. Mm. Because if they'd done that, I mean, with that damage, the thing probably would have exploded. Um, they weren't... They, a the, very different story. One of the, the big concerns was had whatever accident had happened damaged the, the engine cone and... It looked mm. like it had in the yes. pictures. If, yeah. As you see when it's floating away, it, it doesn't look in great shape. <laughs> <laughs> Just before we leave the Apollo 13 story, there, there was something um, really interesting that I unearthed um, when I was doing a bit more reading about it. And it's, it's about the insignia and the artist who, who created it. So it was created by, it was designed by an artist called Lumen Martin Winter, who based it on a, a mural he had painted for the St. Regis Hotel in New York City. Because um, the uh, patch shows... Um, Apollo, the Greek god of the sun, pulling a chariot across the, the lunar surface. So the story goes that um, Jim Lovell, Jack Swigert, and Fred Hayes were staying at that hotel and they saw the mural and they asked him to create their insignia um, for the patch, um, which he did. Uh, and the hotel was later refurbished and the mural was, re was removed and it was put up for auction. And in the, in the 1990s, at some point, Jim Lovell saw the murals for sale at an auction in California, and he told Tom Hanks about it. Tom Hanks, obviously, who'd played Jim Lovell in the Apollo 13 movie. So Tom Hanks's wife and her mother went to the auction and bought it. Uh, and Hanks had it sh um, the mural shipped to an art warehouse in Chicago, and he told um, Jim Lovell to meet him there, but he didn't tell him why. And they walked into this art warehouse, and the mural was sitting there. Uh, and he basically gave it to uh, Lovell uh, as a present, Wow. And Jim Lovell ended up giving it to his son, Jay, who uh, set up a restaurant uh, in, in Illinois and had the had the mural in the restaurant. Um, mm. uh, and But when the re restaurant closed, he then donated it to, uh, apparently there's a, a Captain James A. Level Federal Healthcare Center in, in Illinois in the U.S. And apparently that's, that's where it is today. That's yeah. a resting place now. Goodness, mm. that's quite a journey, isn't it? For a... yeah. I do have to say the Apollo 13 patch is one of my favorites. Mm. Um, it's got three horses sort of running across the sky towards the moon. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah. It's absolutely beautiful. And apparently they, they didn't need to change the names on it because it's 
along with Apollo 11, it's the only Apollo patch not to contain the names of the astronauts. Yeah, mm. that is true. Yeah. <laughs> A little factoid for you there. Yeah. There um, we go. But also, I, I think that also shows that because um, we, we've talked about the, the, the movie quite a bit here. Um, and it's it's one of those things that as I was researching the the what actually happened during the mission, it's astonishing how accurate that film is. Mm. Um, and they really worked alongside the uh, Ron Howard, who's the director, and Tom Hanks, who I believe was the producer, um, they really worked closely with the pe- people who were in mission control. They got as much consultation as they could to make it as accurate as possible. And there is a bit of, you know, overemphasizing just how cold it was and, <laughs> and ramping up the tension a little bit, but not by much. <laughs> um, and and so I'm not surprised at all to hear that they... they Tom Hanks ended up doing something like that years later. From our own solar system and exploration of the moon to exploration of other solar systems and, and other planets, uh, exoplanets, uh, that brings us on to this episode's interview. Uh, this time I've been speaking to Professor Jason Wright, who is an exoplanet researcher at Penn State University in the US. Professor Wright is a project scientist for NUID, which is a new NASA-funded experiment to measure the masses of exoplanets, uh, planets orbiting distant stars, and in doing so, discover more about their properties. I started off by asking Professor Wright to tell us more about the NUID instrument and what it can do. It's really exciting. Um, so the, there, we are now in a new generation of exoplanet discovery instruments. For uh, a long time, uh, we were using some older techniques that let us measure the motions of stars down to a precision of about one meter per second. Um, and uh, this new generation of instruments is uh, stable enough that we can make even more precise measurements of the motions of stars. And that's important because the way we discover or characterize or weigh planets around other stars is by the motion they induce on their stars. So these more precise instruments give us the opportunity to discover and characterize ever more Earth-like planets around the nearby stars. Um, yeah, I mean, I think one of the things that uh, is really interesting about NUID is that this uh, radial velocity method, I, be- I believe it's called. <laughs> um, I was wondering if you could tell us um, precisely how that will work. And, yeah. and also, I suppose, because it, it's something that I was aware of before I had heard of the NUID instrument. So I was wondering um, what yeah. what NUID is going to bring to the, to the radial velocity method. So um, when planets go around their stars, the stars also in their own way kind of go around the planet. They do just a tiny little... Uh, sort of counter orbit as the planet goes around them. And these motions are really small. Um, For scale, Jupiter makes the sun move by about uh, 12 meters per second. So think like, you know, uh, an Olympic sprinter, that sort of speed. Uh, And we can tell that the stars are moving from the Doppler shift of their light if we have a sufficiently stable instrument. Um, And as I said, most instruments uh, until recently, we're able to do about 10 times better than that, measure stellar motions to about one meter per second. Uh, for reference, the Earth makes the sun move at about 10 centimeters per second, so 10 times smaller than our best instruments. And that's why we've needed uh, this this new generation of instruments if we want to detect those gravitational tugs. Um, so NASA and the National Science Foundation uh, here in the United States teamed up to uh, build one of these new uh, next-generation instruments for, uh, for the world to use. So NUID is that instrument. Uh, it's taken us about five years 
from concept to actually having it on the telescope. Uh, and it's going to be at the National Observatories at Kitt Peak in southern Arizona. In fact, it's there right now. Uh, and it'll be available, as I said, for astronomers around the world to use to try and do the best science they can. NASA's primary interest in it is that it has a space observatory, TESS, that is going to discover a lot of potentially rocky, potentially Earth-like planets going in front of bright nearby stars. And we hope that NUID will be one of the uh, primary vehicles for figuring out if those planets are really rocky, figuring out how massive they are, uh, and just understanding them better. So uh, we're really excited to have it on the telescope. And uh, just, a, just a couple months ago, uh, we achieved what's called first light on NUID. So any telescope or instrument in astronomy, uh, at some point it takes its first useful data. And we call that first light. And it's a big milestone in any instrument's development. And, you know, you break out the sparkling cider and you just pause for photos because you've finally gotten that first data. And so it was really exciting to have achieved that. Now, that doesn't mean that we're measuring precise radial velocities and finding planets yet. Um, that takes more work because to measure these sorts of very subtle motions, we need to calibrate the instrument and understand it extremely well. Um, so that'll still take a lot of work and time. We're still working really hard to get there. Uh, but we are taking data, and those data eventually will uh, let us measure the, the motions of these stars. What sort of instrument actually is it? Could you, could you give us a bit of background as to kind of how, how it yeah. actually works? So these Doppler spectrographs, as we call them, um, work by spreading starlight out into its component colors. So essentially, just like light passing through a prism, uh, will turn into a little rainbow, we turn it into a very, very broadly spread out rainbow so that we can see um, extremely uh, subtle differences among the colors. Um, and starlight isn't just a perfect rainbow, even sunlight, there are effectively missing colors if you can disperse the light out broadly enough um, that you can see that are due to the, the chemical constituents of the sun's or the star's atmosphere. And the wavelengths are exact colors that those that are missing uh, will shift if the star is moving forward or uh, towards or away from us by the Doppler effect. And those are the things we're trying to measure. We say this particular wavelength of light, this very specific one uh, that's missing its colors is appearing at this very slightly different wavelength than we expected. That means that the star has moved a little bit or is moving a little bit in, uh, towards or away from us. And then we track those motions over many years to try and see the subtle wobble back and forth. These are really, really subtle motions uh, to give a sense of scale. Um, we image the spectrum on a detector, a lot like the detector um, in your phone, for instance, that you use to take pictures. And that detector is made up of a lot of little pixels. So if we see that the color of light that's missing is on one pixel and then next week it's on a different pixel, one pixel over, that corresponds to a kilometer per second of Doppler shift. So if we go, or uh, maybe 100 meters. And so if, if we want to measure uh, below one meter a second, then we need to measure shifts of a thousandth of a pixel in those missing colors. It's, it's it's very challenging, and that's why it's taken us so long to build this thing. Um, so how does the, the movement of the planet um, tell you about its um, mass and, and density and, and, and things like that? Yeah, so the, um, if we just think of one planet orbiting a star, like imagine Jupiter were the only planet orbiting the sun, um, then Jupiter goes around the sun, and the sun does a much smaller wobble 
um, a sort of counter orbit. And they both orbit their common center of mass that sits between them. Um, so the more massive Jupiter is, the closer to Jupiter the center of mass is, the bigger the sun's orbit about the center of mass in the same orbital period, that means it's moving faster because it has farther to go once per orbit. So the more massive a planet, the more it tugs on the star and the faster the star moves in response. If we're looking for planets like the Earth, they don't have very much mass. They only make the star move by something like 10 centimeters per second. So we need a more precise instrument uh, if we want to measure that. Now, we also learn not just that the planet's there, but how long it takes to go around based on how long it takes the star to go back and forth. That tells us the orbital period, the length of the year of the planet. And from Kepler's laws of motion, that will tell us how far the planet is from the star, which tells us a typical temperature for the planet. So we know if it's possible it might have liquid water, for instance. And then um, from the mass, we can infer, is it a big giant planet uh, or is it something more like the Earth? And then from the pattern we see, we can tell if the orbit is circular or if it's perhaps highly eccentric and the planet gets very hot and very cold over the course of a year because of that. So we can actually learn a lot from these measurements, but it does require us to make those measurements for uh, months and years to follow the planet round and round and round and understand it better. Can it uh, tell us about the atmospheres of the planets and perhaps even some of the um, chemicals present, whether or not they're kind of uh, suitable for life, for example? So this is a spectrograph, and in principle, it can measure that sort of thing. That's not what it's designed to measure. Um, I'm hopeful that for giant planets like Jupiter, especially really hot ones with big puffy atmospheres, we'll be able to see um, new missing colors show up in a very subtle way when the planet passes in front of the star and the starlight goes through the planet's atmosphere. Um, but for planets like Earth, um, terrestrial planets, maybe that people are thinking about for life or something like that, um, th those will be different instruments that make those, uh, those measurements of the atmosphere, probably space missions uh, in the next generation of space missions. Um, what sort of astronomers uh, and teams do you think will be using this? Is, is it basically open theoretically anyway to, to anyone who, who wants to book time on it? Absolutely. It, it, um, so this is done through um, our National Science Foundation's uh, Optical Infrared Astronomy Lab. And uh, they have what's called an open skies policy for all of the telescopes that they operate. And open skies means anyone can propose. You don't have to be American in principle. You don't even have to be a professional astronomer. Uh, anyone can ask to use it. Um, and then uh, they compile panels of experts to evaluate all of the proposals and pick the ones that are most likely to produce the best science. Um, so we can be confident, therefore, that the science NUID does will really be the best science it could possibly be doing because of this competitive proposal process. Um, has, has your role in NUID been mostly the, the establishment of the concept, or do you, now that it's up and running, hope to actually collect data yourself and, 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 and do observations yourself? So I serve as the instrument team's project scientist. And so it was my job as we developed the instrument and built the instrument uh, to make sure that everything, all the design trades that we were making, uh, optimized the science that would come out of the instrument. And then recently, I've spent a lot of time at the telescope commissioning the instrument, um, getting it working, figuring out the kinks, calibrating everything, getting it into an operational mode uh, that will uh, that'll serve everybody best. Um, we certainly hope to do a lot of use on it be, uh, as part of the deal with NASA for building this thing here at Penn State. Um, 
we get guaranteed time on it. And so in addition to the open skies time, uh, our team will also have a significant chunk of time to do the science we'd like to do with it as well. Fantastic. Um, what sort of, um, what are your kind of hopes for, for the NUID project? I mean, what's, what sort of thing would you like to, what sort of discoveries would you hope that would be made? I mean, are, 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 are you kind of hoping that uh, specific results will, will come yeah. from, the, you know, from, from the mission? One of my favorite parts about um, really powerful instruments like this that have a competitive proposal process is that you know it's going to do great science, and you can guess what that science is and, 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 um, and design it for that. But it's often people that propose to do something unexpected that do the most interesting science with it. And so I'm sure that we will measure masses and characterize a lot of the most interesting planets discovered by tests. And so I'm hoping that it will discover um, rocky planets with interesting atmospheres, maybe with water in them, uh, that we can characterize perhaps with the James Webb Space Telescope or others. I'm hopeful that it will discover planets that we will be able to directly image with upcoming missions. Um, maybe W first, but looking farther down the line, Louvoir and Habex, which are going to try and actually image as little points of light, pale blue dots like the Earth. Uh, we might uh, contribute to to finding those planets with NUID. Um, but NUID is a beautiful, outstanding stellar spectrograph. And so I'm sure it will do all sorts of other science we didn't think of and help us understand stars and the planets that orbit them a lot better. Um, you, you spoke at the start about uh, the next generation of um, exoplanet research, um, just just in terms of things like the JWST and the uh, some of the European missions like Keops, do, do you think we're in a good um, a good period for for exoplanet hunting? Do, do you think yeah. there's a, a a new generation uh, kind of ahead of us? Yeah, you know, I got into the exoplanet research game uh, when it was about five years old. Uh, so exoplanets had been discovered five years earlier. There were only about twenty of them known when I started, um, and so it's been amazing to watch it go from this brand new field. We don't know what we're going to find. Everything's a surprise. Uh, and then the advent of Kepler, discovering thousands of planets. And now we have a census. We know what's out there, more or less. Uh, we have a good sense of the numbers, and we can design experiments to study the most interesting ones. And so I think we are moving into a new era of the field uh, as it matures, where instruments like NUID uh, are becoming uh, almost common. There's a few others very similar to it. Certainly, almost every observatory now has an instrument not nearly as precise as NUID, but um, that can do this sort of exoplanet science. Um, and we have whole space missions that are being designed uh, just to find you know, a few of the nearest, very most interesting uh, planets. The, the field itself has grown tremendously. Um, something like a quarter of the abstracts at the big professional astronomy meetings are in some way related to exoplanets. Um, so it's been, yeah, amazing watching it go from a very small field to a significant fraction of what astronomers work on. One of the things I'm always really interested in with regard to exoplanets is the, is the idea of exomoons. Um, it, is that, is that something that we're actually uh, close to finding or, I mean, how, how, how do you kind of... It, it depends on what's out there. Um, if, if exomoons are, uh, if big exomoons are common, like, think like Endor, Right from from Star Wars or or the the, um, the Avatar planet or something like that. I, I think that was a moon. Um, if we're thinking about things like Earth orbiting big big planets, then I think it's possible we'll find some soon. And David Kipping's team at Columbia uh, and Alex Tichy there have um, have some really interesting candidates 
that might might be it. Um, as far as like smaller moons, like the size of our moon or even smaller like that, Europa Enceladus, that's very hard. And uh, I'm not sure how long it'll be before we find those. But I'm hopeful that the universe does have Earth-like moons out there uh, and that we'll be studying them soon. Well, I, I, I guess we should just be concentrating on, on the fact that we've got all this amazing um, exoplanet discovery yet yet to make. Oh, no, I, I think it's always interesting to, to, to stretch because, you know, when they were looking for exoplanets, they didn't think they'd be so easy to find. I mean, I say easy now. They're very difficult to find in the sense that we're looking for Earth-like planets. But um, it wasn't clear when the early um, pioneers of the field were doing this that exoplanets would be so ubiquitous and that the giant ones would be so close to their stars that they'd actually, you know, be uh, relatively easy to find. And so when the first ones were discovered, it was a surprise how easy they were to find. And there was this explosion as all of a sudden we could find lots of them. So I think it's important to think about exomoons and things that we think might be out of our reach because nature might surprise us again. And it might turn out that, yeah, we can do a lot of work right now. Fantastic. Well, uh, thanks very much for speaking to me today, Jason. And I just want to wish you um, all the best for uh, NUID and, you know, can't, can't wait to see what's uh, discovered using it. Great. Thanks a lot. That was Professor Jason Wright of Penn State University. You can find more about the NUID instrument on our website, www.skyatnightmagazine.com. There's plenty to see in the night sky this month. It's a great time to take a look at the planet Venus, which will be a prominent object in the evening sky, meaning it'll be an easy find with the naked eye and it's definitely worth taking a look at it through binoculars or a small telescope. Once the sun has set, use a low-powered eyepiece to track it down. When you have it in view, increase the magnification and record what you see. Repeat this over several nights throughout the month and you should see Venus growing and changing. The first week of the month is a particularly good night to view the planet as its path against the background stars will be taking it through the Pleiades open cluster. The planet will appear nestled within the cluster on the 3rd of April and it will be close by from the 1st to the 6th of April. So that's it from us this month. You can find out more about Apollo 13 in the April issue of BBC Sky at Night magazine, where we also take a look at Hubble's role in finding and researching dark energy, look at how to scientifically observe the upcoming Lyrid meteor shower, and take a look at ESA's solar orbiter mission. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Radio Astronomy podcast from the makers of BBC Sky at Night magazine, which was produced in our Bristol studio by Jack Bateman and Ben Hewitt. For more of our podcasts, visit our website at skyatnightmagazine.com or head to iTunes, Acast or Spotify. Spotify.